Hey listeners, welcome back to the podcast at DC. We took a few months unplanned hiatus as we've been busy with projects that we're excited to tell you about soon. We're pulling in some help this summer, thanks to our new podcast intern, Tim Madden of the District Leadership Program. He'll be working through a backlog of episodes and recording several new ones about the lab's own work. On today's episode, you'll still hear David Yoakum's voice, but soon you'll start hearing episodes hosted by the lab's interim director, Sam Quinney. And good news, David will be releasing a new podcast out of his new gig at the Policy Center at Brown University. As soon as it's live, we promise to connect you. And with that, here's our episode. In February 2018, D.C. welcomed its 700,000th resident, putting the city's population at its highest since the mid-1970s. But with the growing population comes a growing concern about the district's ability to provide affordable and inclusive housing. Does the city have enough homes? Are they varied enough to accommodate singles, couples, and families? What will make the city financially accessible for the native and the new Washingtonians? I'm David Yoakum, and today we're digging into these questions with DC Policy Center's founder and executive director, Yeshem Sayan Taylor, an author of the center's recent study, Taking Stock of the District's Housing Stock. Yesham Taylor, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you for having me. So I think most people coming into this conversation have probably a, a general sense that housing in the district, there's a lot of pressure on it. Population has been growing. I think we hit about 700,000 folks recently. And your recent report from the DC Policy Center is an attempt to try to get a better descriptive picture of what the housing stock looks like. So I actually want to pivot in a second to what you found on the descriptors, but I'm curious as a threshold question, what prompted you to write this report? Why focus on this now? We were wondering if there are at all any affordable units in the District of Columbia. Uh, we associate affordability with certain neighborhoods in the city, but um, there is certain types of housing. For example, the types of apartment buildings you see around the 270 corridor in Maryland or along 395 in Virginia, where they're pretty nice units, but they're still affordable. So one of the questions a friend of mine asked me is like, are there any housing units like that in the district? So I started thinking about, okay, I spent 10 years looking at tax data at the CFO's office. Can I use any of that to try to come up with some estimation of value that's related to the housing characteristics? So what started as a quick question right before my Christmas break turned into a three-month deep dive into housing data. Well, so, and I think we'll have a moment to talk about the method and the data used to stitch together, but maybe let's start again with that description. What did you actually find? What does the housing stock look like in the district? Yeah, um, again, we focused on the housing stock. I focused on the housing stock on, uh, in the study because, well, we pay a lot of attention to uh, the pipeline, how many people are moving in, how many units are there for them. A lot of the change happens within the stock. Units get subdivided, they get united into a single unit again. So uh, I tried to capture not the flow, but basically the big picture. And after doing a lot of data analyses, I found that there are about 320,000 housing units in the District of Columbia. And of these, some of them belong to 
institutional owners like hospitals and universities and embassies and things like that. And those are potentially not available to residents. When you take those units out, about 300 and 4,000 housing units. And now the other interesting thing is we know that there are lots of single family homes in the District of Columbia, but for a city that's restricted for space, not just its small footprint, but also the heights limitations, we have a lot of single family homes. We have about 90,000 single family homes. That's about 30% of our housing stock. And they take about 80% of the buildings. Everything else is crammed into 23,000 units, so uh, buildings. So no wonder the city feels very suburban, especially for someone like me who grew up in a very dense urban city in Turkey. I was very surprised by how many single-family homes are they are. It looked like a holiday village. So there's a lot there. I want to parse through it one more time because I think you just conveyed a lot of interesting insights. And let me actually start with just a definitional question. When you say a housing unit, what concretely should we be thinking about? Okay, that's a good question. It includes single-family homes, which may be townhouses or single-family homes that don't touch anything, which are known as detached units. Or they can be semi-attached, which means that they're like duplexes, two houses that are combined together. A bulk of them in the district, obviously, are row houses and detached housing, depending on where you are. And then add on that... A multi-family units, some of them are apartments that are units for rent and built to be for rent. And some of the, these are condominiums or cooperatives, which are uh, multi-family building units, but each unit is owned by somebody. Sometimes it's owned directly by someone. Sometimes the owner owns a share. That's what the cooperative is. Um, so those are the things you should be thinking about. And there's about 320,000 such housing units. That's right. And then single-family units, define that. As I said, there are buildings designed to hold just one family. Um, sometimes they're row houses, so the entire collection of them. But each unit that, you know, if you look up, you don't see another family. You just see your roof. Whereas everything else, if you look up or you look down, you'll see another family. It's a sort of neat way of thinking about it. So a methods question. How do you figure out the market value for any given housing unit? Oh, that's a good question. So it's driven by a lot of assumptions. It's all driven by the tax valuations. There are two different ways to approach tax assessments. One is for properties that do not generate income or that are not meant to generate income. Single family homes, condominiums, they're generally meant to be owned. And, you know, the owner is meant to live in those. Those are assessed what we call a hedonic pricing method. So the tax assessor will add the roof, to the wall, to the number of bathrooms, to the number of fireplaces, the other infrastructure like does it have an AC, all of those things are smooshed into a single number. And then the, the, the assessors look at that value and compare it to what is in the neighborhood, what the sales are. So those assessments are pretty close to market value. The CFO also publishes market value to assessed value reports to adjust tax assessments for these units to match closer what the estimated market value is. Again, I should reiterate, we never know what the market value of any housing unit is until someone signs that uh, contract line. Zillow can give you estimates. They're all estimates, so ours is an estimate as well. So that's how we calculated the valuations for houses that are not meant to generate income. Then there is income generating properties, for example, apartment buildings. There we 
use just method that the tax assessors also use, which looks at the value of the building, like we look at the value of a stock. So we took the net operating income, which is a series of incomes that this property will generate every year. And we divided that by what is known as the cap rate, which is essentially the interest rate specific to the real estate market around that property. So that's how we estimated the valuations for, and we adjusted them for operating expenditures, obviously, for buildings that with net operating incomes less than the gross income, such as rents, because they have to pay for the concierge, to maintain shared spaces, they offer maintenance. Um, those are the things that the homeowner themselves have to do if they have a single family home. So we adjust for those. And 93,000 are single family units. That's right. And it's about 30% of the total housing stock, that 320,000 units, or another way you put it was about four out of five of the residential buildings are actually used by single families. Now, how does this compare to other metropolitan areas? That's a really good question. When you look at cities like New York, there are many, 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 many more multifamily units. So compared to our neighboring jurisdictions, we actually have more multifamily units. But compared to cities like New York, cities like Chicago or Boston, we have a lot of single family units. We have to worry a little bit about the comparisons because here the defining characteristics of the district is how small it is. So when you think of New York, it has very big footprint, the city itself. So I would maybe limit the comparisons to Manhattan because when you throw in some other boroughs, then you'll find neighborhoods that look like Capitol Hill. If you go to Brooklyn, you'll find neighborhoods that look like Capitol Hill in terms of like the brown stones there, the row houses that are very similar. But we don't have that. We basically have Manhattan only. And here in Manhattan, we have a lot of queens also going on in the city. And I guess the district, 68 square miles, is probably what, like three times the size of Manhattan, and I think something like that. Yeah. Well, so, so if we're a more suburban type of city, in some sense, there is this general perception I think a lot of people have that there isn't enough housing for families, for people that have... Mm-hmm one, two, maybe three kids. If there is such a large percentage of the housing stock that is single family homes, what's the disconnect that's happening here? It turns out there is a lot of large units in the District of Columbia because we have so many single, fam- single family units. Almost all of them can accommodate families of four or more. That was one of the surprising finds in the study. In resp- retrospect, maybe not, but when you look at all the units in the District of Columbia by their capacity, how many people can comfortably live in them, you will find almost all of your single-family homes. That's, again, 95,000 of them, most of them single-family, some large multifamily units that can accommodate households of four or more. But when you look at the actual number of housing units occupied by four or more people, most of them are related, but some of them are just people sharing a house, we only find about 35,000 of them. So there are lots of large units, But we also have a lot of singles and couples who are generally as rich as families, if not more. And they tend to compete in this market for larger housing units because places that are attractive to families, like a house in Tanley Town or somewhere west of the park, they're also attractive to a a young couple or or a single person because this is a city with high levels of connectivity and the neighborhoods that 
offer amenities that families like, they also offer amenities that singles like. So do you see a lot of competition from singles and couples? The other reason why we see a squeeze on family housing is because we have lots of units occupied by seniors, but it's very hard to downsize in the District of Columbia if you're a senior because neighborhoods, again, are not very mixed in their nature. So you can't just leave your house and move to apartment building in your neighborhood and still remain in your community. You have to move far away. So a lot of the seniors do not do that. They just keep the house. Some prefer to. They want their grandkids to come. Some kind of think of it as, as a bequest they'll make to their children. So there's a lot of units that's also low occupancy because of the seniors who live in them. In this competition between families and singles or couples, in the report, you give some revealing descriptive statistics on the average income. Can you maybe talk us through that? So... When you look at an income distribution in somewhere that's not a small city, you'll see that incomes go up as the family size increases, and then they start declining after like the family size hits six or seven, because now we're capturing other things like multi-generational families. There's a reason they live together, and it's, most of it has to do with income. Um, but when you look at the district, you see this uh, bimodal distribution. The district's median income is about $85,000. When you look at households with two persons, the median income of these households is about $104,000. The median income of families of four is also $104,000, $105,000. And if you look at a five-person household, now incomes have gone down to $87,000. So we have couples that earn more than families with three children in the District of Columbia. So they are competitors. Not only we have them, we have them in very large numbers. So if you look at, for example, households that earn ninety to $130,000, what would qualify as sort of middle income in the District of Columbia, you will find 8,200 households with three or more persons, let's say they're proxy for families, and then you'll find 28,000 households that are singles or couples. So not only you have people earning more money than families, there are also many, many more of them. So every time there's a housing unit that's affordable at the middle income level, for every family that shows up, there will be four singles and couples coming and competing. Not only that they can compete, they also don't have children, so they don't have to worry about paying expenses related to having children. There is no daycare cost, there is no car payment. So not only they're richer, they can perhaps also spend 40-50% of their incomes on housing. You see this in uh, new development that are small units, the ones you see along the H Street corridor, where sort of like the height of the units are actually bigger than the length of the units. <laughs> they, are t they tend to be expensive, but you see high demand for these units. If there wasn't this competition from singles and couples, are there enough household units to meet all the families that we have? The housing stock has a lot of capacity for large families. It just doesn't have enough capacity for small households. So one of the things I take heart from the findings of this study is every time you see a new development that puts a lot of small units, we should actually celebrate that because that's addressing a type of demand that's not fully met in our housing stock. Uh, maybe not today, but if we build more small units, at some point, 
there will be less pressure on family housing. That is not the only factor. Of course, it's not like couples and singles, they only look for efficiencies and they have to go to single family homes because they couldn't find efficiencies or one bedrooms. There's also a preference for large space. So those are the kinds of things we need to also think about what does it mean to live in a city and what kind of like space arrangements can we live under. That's true for families too. You can cram two kids in a single bedroom if you wanted to, but there's preference for backyards and hobby rooms and, and sometimes home offices, which is a new necessity uh, for some people. So there are lots of factors that affect that outcome. Yeah, and I guess my non-economist way of thinking about that that I had in mind is... And- I'm a recent dad. I've got two kids thinking about perhaps wanting more than one bedroom that we're all jammed into, starting to look at the market of housing units that have two or three rooms. Whether it's two rooms or four rooms, people are going to have some preference range. But, you know, there's a perception I think a lot of people have, and I think you even referred to some of the data on people moving around of once families hit a certain size, there's a tendency potentially to start looking outside the district. If there wasn't that competition from singles and couples and people had more ability to compete for the housing stock that was inside the district, would we be in the same position? Probably not. I mean, again, a lot of factors go into why people move. But the thing to keep in mind is housing market is like a stage, right? All these forces, demographic changes, socioeconomic changes are actors that are sort of performing on this stage. If that stage is restricted, you end up with one outcome. And if that stage is lost, then you end up with another. In the district, that stage is very, very restricted, which means that population growth means gentrification. Gentrification means displacement. And we characterize the impact of demographic change because of how they are filtered through the housing market. If there were enough housing units to hold the newcomers, to the city, we wouldn't think of it as gentrification. We would think of it as increased inclusivity. So these terms take different meanings depending on how the housing market restricts the population changes or the impacts of the population changes. And I think that's another takeaway. Rather than thinking about if we didn't have this demand, if we didn't have these couples, I find it more productive to think about if we didn't have the kind of zoning that built this particular development, if we didn't have the neighborhood pressures, if we didn't have the type of uh, interventions from the federal uh, government or such as the urban renewal, what would we have ended up with? And then this follow-up question is, we know that parts of the district, very attractive to families, incredibly expensive and not affordable for families. Part of the district, very affordable to families, but lack the amenities that families need to strive, you know, better schools, maybe safer neighborhoods, quality retail, access to job centers. There are lots of housing units in Deanwood, Fort DuPont. As um, our study shows, home ownership <clears throat> rates are very, very low. Lots of single family homes. And we, you know, we put a lot of money into housing production trust fund, but maybe one way to think about adding more affordable housing is investing in those neighborhoods. So we end up with these two worlds, and there is resistance to change in both. In neighborhoods like Fort DuPont or Deanwood, people worry that if you start investing, the low-income families who live there now will be displaced. They worry about it. If you look at Ward 3, Ward 2, neighborhoods west of the park, people are terrified of increased density. I counted 11 neighborhoods uh, west of the park where there is not a single multifamily building. 
if you added very small multifamily building in these neighborhoods, right? Like say you pick 10, you add it in each of them, a multifamily building with, that can accommodate 100 families, nothing ginormous, just sort of like mid-sized building, you will increase the number of buildings by less than a percent, but you will increase the number of families that can live there by like 16%. Now there are 800, 1,000 families that can benefit from better schools, but there's a lot of resistance to that kind of change as well. So I think we need to think about zoning, we need to think about maybe increasing density in some places, but we also need to think about our use of space, both in the city, but also mentally how we use our own space. So we really need that sixth bathroom. Again, something for someone who did not grow up in America. It was very striking to me, like how many staircases can a house have going up and going down, or how many bathrooms you could have. It's just very, very difficult to find these in a city like Paris is a good example, right? It's also not a very high-rise city, but its density is six times the District of Columbia. And people make choices there, and that's part of the choice is what to keep and what not to keep in your house. And there won't be 17 different renditions of Monopoly game. I can't guarantee you that. When interpreting these findings, how do we take into consideration the possibility that young couples are increasingly interested in staying in the district long term. And so they're moving into these newer, larger homes with more space than they need, but it's with the intention of expanding their families. Yeah, um, that's true. But again, uh, because we have restricted housing, they are filling spots emptied by other families. They may not have lived in the same neighborhoods that the newcomers are choosing to live but they, some others have left. Uh, we've started increasing our population in early 2000s. But families started coming back in 2011. We've increased the number of babies, but school-age children is still below where it was before 2009. Again, going back to the terminology, we now call it displacement, but it used to be called suburbanization of African-American families. And they left not because they couldn't find housing, they left because there were other things that were missing in the District of Columbia. But we still lose, in certain parts of the city, a lot of families because they really cannot find housing for their growing families. Again, goes back to how affluent incoming couple is. If you have sort of like won the income lottery or the education lottery and you can afford, you have some options you can look at in the district. But if you haven't, then your choices will have to be, as your family grows, will have to be somewhere outside of the city. A lot of the pathways to middle class, you know, we have lots of programs trying to build those pathways to middle class in the District of Columbia, but a lot of them point out towards the suburban counties in the metropolitan area. For example, when you look at data from American Community Survey, we lose about 26,000 residents every year, just to the suburbs. And when you ask them why, about 23% of them say starting a new family. So typical story told about the district was that you come here, you get married, and you have your first child, your kid turns to, you're out. And uh, one of the things that happened is with universal pre-K, combined with how expensive childcare can be in the District of Columbia, a lot of the couples are considering staying in the district. And once they put their kids through pre-K, tend to stay through fifth grade. But we see that retention decline when the children hit middle school years. And we haven't sort of squeezed the most we can out of the pre-K retention. 
there is a study on this that Ginger Moores and Laurie Metcalf did with the CFO's office using tax data. And they have shown that if you have a second kid here, your chances of staying have increased. So it seems like people make a commitment to their house, the neighborhood, some people at least, and they'll make do in the city. But others, they do still move out quite a bit. So your point is that what we're witnessing is an economic divide where we've got this limited housing stock and it's incoming young professionals who are are constraining the affordable housing stock for existing residents with less money to spend on housing. D.C. has always had a very transient population. And big cities are like that. You know, there are lots of good jobs here. I came from Turkey to fill them. I don't know where you come from, but I doubt that it's D.C. Most likely it isn't. So the city has always been very transient. But there is a certain systematic outflow of African-American families. You know that we don't have an African-American majority in our population anymore. No longer Chocolate City as it was known. Share of African-Americans in our population is now down to 47%. It was 77 right after white flight. Again, going back to these terms about gentrification, you know, suburbanization, white flight, they're all the same um, dynamics but different contexts. Part of the reason is because newcomers tend to be white, and uh, part of the reason is because those who exit the city tend to be black. This is also amplified in income uh, dynamics. When you look at some neighborhoods east of the river, nominal incomes, not real incomes, have declined from 2000. The people who live in certain parts of Ward 7 and 8 actually earn less in nominal terms than the people who lived in the same neighborhoods 18 years ago. It's not that they lost jobs. Those who had middle-class ambitions have moved out. And that's what we're saying. Another area of work that comes to mind has to do with traffic, actually, where there's been research shown that if you try to solve traffic congestion by building more roads, sometimes it has no benefit and actually can make traffic come worse just because more people start driving. I wonder if there's any sort of similar dynamic that comes to play in housing, where if you start making denser and denser, do you just gain a little bit on the affordability for, I don't know what time horizon, a year or something like that, but then more and more people want to come in, so the pressure keeps coming in, so that you just get denser and denser and denser, but trailing at more and more expense. That makes me wonder, you know, what, what is a realistic expectation for a land-restricted region like the district in terms of how dense we can really get how expensive or cheap we can make the pricing at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a quite a moral judgment that the city has to make about its future. Do we want an exclusive city that only caters to people who are lucky enough to buy at some point? Or do we want to be inclusive? And if you want to be inclusive, we should not be afraid of density or attracting more people. This is sort of like an exclusion bias. We don't see the people who don't live in our neighborhoods they're excluded and they could be living in the city. You know, more people could bike to work, um, but they can't because they can't afford to live close to their work. So I think it's it's an entirely moral uh, judgment that the city has to make and each neighborhood has to make on its own. For those areas that are resistant to increasing density, if you were to advise them on how to think about the trade-offs here, what sort of things you would tell them? The housing is a very emotional thing. Again, I think there's nothing wrong with saying, look, I bought my house in this neighborhood because I liked how it looked. I like the fact that there's 
you know, a park across my house. I like the fact that I can stroll and see the sunshine. There is nothing wrong with that. And I completely understand and respect those decisions. It's it comes at a cost of when you say, okay, I'm going to now maintain this neighborhood characteristic because that's what I wanted. It comes at the cost of all the other people who could have lived there, maybe your grandchildren who could have lived there, but they can't. Now they have to go live somewhere else. Again, it's a moral judgment that individuals have to make. The city can enforce one way or the other, these judgments, right? And that's why it's a moral judgment that the city has to make. Because housing is emotional, it's hard to throw a lot of statistics to appease these concerns. There's lots of concerns about how density will increase crime. Turns out that's really not the case. How density will increase traffic. As we have learned, increasing or decreasing traffic is about lane management, not necessarily about adding more people. A good example is the 14th Street, which used to be a very wide street, and it's not anymore. And, you know, you're a brave soul if you want to drive up and down there. You probably walk the whole distance in a much shorter time. So we can deal with this through different things. And we also, as a city, put a lot of value in inclusivity when it comes to immigration. We've put a lot of value in climate. The denser we pack people here, the easier to achieve these goals of lower carbon footprint. You know, that's probably the most important thing the district does for the entire country is attract people from Wyoming and Texas to come and live here because a big chunk of their carbon footprint disappears when they move here because they have to live in a smaller place and travel much less by car. And all of those things are served, inclusivity in terms of sort of our ethnic and national mix, and climate concerns, all of these things are served with density. But again, housing is a world where we can express our feelings that we would be very reluctant to express in the same way when it comes to these other issues. Another concern that sometimes gets stated is that the housing valuations will go down if density increases. Is that true? Does that tend to actually happen? Mixed neighborhoods do have single-family homes that are sometimes valued less, but I think a better way to think of it is it's not that housing valuations will go down, but people worry that they, they won't skyrocket as much as they have in the past. It changes from place to place. I mean, it's really hard to say housing values will go down. Like the housing values go up if there is demand for the neighborhood. And if the preference is not to live in mixed neighborhoods, single family values will go down. That's fine. But you just replace them with more affordable housing then. The other camp you talk about is investing to make certain neighborhoods more desirable and the resistance that could come in terms of worries about gentrification. Kind of similar to what you just did, giving advice about increasing density. How do you approach that concern? I think increasing density also helps in those cases. So think of Ward 7. Think of the Minnesota-Benning uh, corridor, right? There, around that corridor, there are lots of single-family homes. A lot of single-family homes, and they're completely affordable by the way we estimated their value. In fact, a lot of these single-family homes house low-income families that are now using uh, Section 8 vouchers or rent subsidies from the city to be able to live in those uh, neighborhoods. Their children do not have the same access to schools as children who live in Cleveland Park, let's say. They have to go to schools that don't have quite the same success as Ward 3 schools, for example. Families who live there don't have quite the same access to transportation as people in Columbia Heights, or they don't have the same kind of access to bike lanes. 
if they want to buy groceries, they don't have the same kind of access that you have around show or even navy yard, even though they're relatively close places. And if we were to increase density in these places by building very densely across the transportation corridors, you can still maintain the look and feel of the uh, single family uh, neighborhoods, but be able to increase the price mix and the income mix there. Part of the reason retail amenities or job centers are away from these neighborhoods is because there is no purchasing power. So adding purchasing power will help. I think the bigger problem is this worry about displacement. And again, a lot of it has to do with changing minds and switch mindsets about how we think about inclusivity and mixed income neighborhoods, because you can explain to people saying like more housing means you don't have to be displaced, you know there'll be room for many more people than you can stay. And people worry about it, and that's because they've seen the example of what happened in Ward 5, for example. And there we added more housing, but the population growth just overwhelmed. Do you think that would happen in Ward 7 and 8? Are there things that could be done to go a different road than that? I think we'll start seeing some housing value increases. I mean, the East of River has been particularly immune to gentrification dynamics. But if our population continues to increase and, you know, with stronger schools, there'll be more demand to live there. You see a lot of young professionals moving towards seven. And if they choose to get married, and maybe they'll want to stay in their neighborhoods, just like a lot of young professionals did when they moved to uh, Columbia Heights or the Central Corridor. I think investing in amenities is absolutely necessary to build income mix in these neighborhoods. I think building density across transportation is absolutely necessary. It's just that the housing stock needs to grow faster than the population, and we need to be ready for that. How do you think about the balance in terms of how much the market should kind of be left on its own to sort these out versus how proactive government should be in doing things? Yeah, I mean, housing is the perfect example of how markets and government programs coexist and must coexist at all times. I mean, a lot of the housing you see in the city, it's there because developer looked at a piece of land and they said, "Mm, I like this, I can build here and I can sell. And that's what they do. That's their business. And that will continue to happen. But a lot of it is also affected by regulations and rules that we have around construction, housing, And a lot of it is historic. The urban renewal, for example, changed how Southwest Waterfront looked. And it's changing once again. But in 50s and 60s, the Southwest Waterfront accommodated over 23,000 low-income families. Uh, When it was rebuilt, it only had 5,800 units. So the rest were spread mostly to northeast and southeast neighborhoods in the city. So that changed quite a bit of things. And now we have lots of interventions that does affect the housing market. We have rent control, for example. We have a building code make sure that housing doesn't crumble on our heads. We have Housing Production Trust Fund. We have TOPA. We have DOPA. We have inclusionary zoning. We have anti-discrimination rules. We have tax breaks for home ownership and further tax breaks for seniors who own their homes. So the two will always have to exist together. A lot of the government programs are there to maintain affordability. Some of it's there for anti-discrimination. Some of the programs are there for, obviously, our safety. 
Um, but we need to think about how to sort of reconcile affordability with market forces. So one of the things I think we need to look at more carefully is more regional approach to housing. When you look at housing programs, the ones that I just named, you can find them in Arlington, you can find them in Montgomery County, you can find a subset of them in Fairfax County, another subset in Prince George's County. First, we're a big box jurisdiction, right? We don't have that many different governments. If you drive down Pennsylvania or, or Ohio, every 10 minutes you'll pass another little unincorporated town. So it's very hard to coordinate policy there. We are far less fragmented as local bodies here. Not, I'm not saying it's easy to coordinate, as we've seen with the metro. It took us a lot of effort. But when it works, like metro, like the airport, it works really well. I think housing is one area we need to look at more of the regional approach. Again, because the a metro area is a single housing market, ultimately. And a metro area is a single labor market, so we need to find ways to increase employer engagement. Is there any way we can use employer engagement to develop housing or subsidize housing? And those are two areas I think that are underexplored in the city for obvious reasons, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at them in the future. I think we should be. Another thing to think about is the district is very good at promoting certain lifestyle things, small carbon footprints and bike to work. Maybe we should think about living in small places or a way to shift our minds about what we really need to be able to live. Do we, does a family of four really need four bedrooms? One for the guest, one for the um, in-laws. Does it really need two staircases, six bathrooms? Do, do your kids really need a backyard? I mean, I understand all of those preferences, but if those preferences were to shift towards smaller spaces, we could accommodate more families in the district and have more people moving into the district. I think that's another area to look at. Thinking about inclusivity is another thing. I mean, if we don't do anything, what happens? And maybe that will motivate us to think more about this. Last question, also a little bit of potential introduction to the DC Policy Center for folks who don't know it. What's coming down the pipeline? What other work, both on this topic or other topics, should we keep our eye out for? Okay, so this year we're focusing on a number of threads. In our first year, we wrote quite a bit about a lot of things, and our fellows will continue to write quite a bit. But our housing work will continue. So one of the things we want to look at is the shadow rental market. One thing that we noticed doing the study is a lot of single-family homes are up for rent in the District of Columbia. Again, it has to do with the transient nature of the city, but it's something that's generally not explored, so that's one thing that we're planning to look at. We have an education initiative. We've just recently put out a study that looks at how neighborhood characteristics and school choices vary. We'll continue building on that and combining our housing work with the education work, so we're trying to estimate the premium attached to an in-boundary school and how that varies with certain attributes of the school. On the education front, we have a whole new research thread looking at racial inequities. Again, joining that with housing, we're doing two separate papers, one on various practices that actually increase inequities in the District of Columbia. Some of them are market-based. For example, small units, are they uh, discriminatory for black families who tend to, that tend to be larger or could be multi-generational families? But also some government um, policies, for example, the tax breaks uh, for home ownership, they also reduce the amount of transition in the market. And the extreme case of this is Proposition 13, 
we don't have something like that, but we have the tax gap. So we're looking at the impacts of that. And then we are also starting to do some work on competitiveness. One of the things that we're interested in is um, how has gentrification affected minority-owned businesses? You know, one day you're there selling mamba sauce and the next day you have to sell pokeballs or other things that you cannot really pronounce. We're curious how that affected minority businesses in the district. It's sort of in the longer term a project that we're looking at. We have many more, but I think I'll just leave you with those. Yesham Taylor, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Nellie Moore. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.